All right, we're going to get going here on lesson two in our membership um, curriculum. And again, we think this is really helpful for our whole church to go through on a, I wouldn't say a regular basis, but maybe a, a sense of a refresher. And I think one of the challenges of pastoral ministry is to strike that balance of reaffirming kind of that internal DNA that makes, makes the church unified around those core principles of Scripture and express it well, not lose sight of those things without getting to the place where um, it's a tiresome uh, repetition of what is so basic and already known. Uh, so hopefully this is encouraging to you all and helpful. Uh, I, this is probably saying it to the wrong crowd, but if you miss it or if someone else is looking to catch up and uh, needs to follow up on this, we are posting these online so you can follow up later. So if you missed next week or the week after, um, you, you're able to kind of follow along, especially if you're trying to get caught up with where our church is at. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that history. You could read that paragraph, but essentially, oh, this is probably going back 20 years or so for me. Um, I, I think the West Coast particularly is strategic in American um, ministry. I think it's influential. Generally speaking, California is one of those states that grows and influences the rest of the country. Um, it seems like half of the U.S. has lived in California at one time or another. But also just look at the population. Stick a pin in Bakersfield. Draw a six to eight hour drive around Bakersfield. And you get, you get the Phoenix area, all of Vegas, L.A., San Francisco. You're looking probably at 50 million people, which is a huge portion of our country. So if we could have an influence in Southern California for church planting, I think um, faithful churches could have a massive influence on the whole nation and, frankly, on the whole world in terms of missions. The amount of money in California, what is it, we're the sixth biggest economy? in the world, fifth, it's, it's huge. When you, when, you, when you look at the implications of having good ministry in California and doing good church work, uh, I think California has that, that strategic need. Also, I think we are increasingly pagan and mixing that paganism with this kind of nominal Christianity where people say they're Christian but really don't have much Christian faith. Uh, th this is what brought us to California. Bakersfield, in particular, has been a growing city, uh, one of the top, uh, like top ten in terms of population growth over the last. Is that my mic popping? That's me, right? It happens. These cables are super thin, and so they periodically break on us. Okay, maybe that fixed it. I kind of tightened up the connection there, so hopefully we'll stop the popping. It's Distracting at the least. Okay, so um, 2006, we uh, began the process of working to plant the church. In 2008, we chartered, so we just had our 15th anniversary. And just as an admonition, I think our church is at a stage in which we really need to be committed to uh, the, the sacrifice of church planting and, church, and, and strengthening our church to plant church. Like, like, you can't plant a church if you're just surviving. Um, if you're malnourished, it's almost impossible to get pregnant. I think if your church is malnourished, it's unhealthy to plant. And so I'd really love to see our church at a place where church planting is something that's really healthy and strengthens the vitality of our church rather than diminishes it. So on some of you, I'm laying this burden. Get to the place where either you can lead a ministry because you're not currently leading so that we could send the ministry leader as one of the core members of a church plant 
or so that you could go as one of the core plant um, ministry partners as, as leader. So, you know, maybe you're not leading a ministry, but you have the competency to grow to lead it. Then when we plant a church and we send the leader, you can be the sub here and replace them, or you can go and take ministry leadership there. I think most our church family should be thinking like that. Like, how can I help this church be ready to plant another? Um, having said all of that, just kind of giving you a little bit of a, a crossway in a nutshell, then I want to talk to you about, like, what makes us unique? What's our DNA? And maybe identity is how I, I have it in lesson two in terms of the sub, subheading there. But um, I think statements that help us understand that, so we have a handful that we'll talk through this morning, are... are, are Given not because they say it all, but because they say it well and briefly. So I have three statements. Concise statements are helpful. They're helpful because they keep us focused and they keep us moving. Have you guys ever seen an institution that seems to exist merely for the sake of existing? You know, it's like they have staff and everything, but they're more concerned with next year's survival than actually accomplishing any purpose. I think churches run into that kind of survival mode where giving sustains, but gospel outreach, gospel ministry, um, people being conformed to Christ-likeness, these things are, they're, they're unmeasurably happening. They might be happening, but it's like there's no significant growth in any of those categories in any way, but there's just enough money to survive. And so, it's, it's almost then at that place, like, you're just clinging to life. You're really not accomplishing much. That'd be really a sad thing if that was said about your family or you as a person or a church. Living things are meant to grow. And so concise statements help us to stay focused and to measure that vitality. Uh, have you ever heard something like this? Um, something like, if you aim at nothing, you'll probably hit it. Or if you have no goals, you'll probably achieve them. Um, it's just like, like if you have no purpose, you, you're, you're going to accomplish nothing. Okay, so mission of church. Does anyone know what the mission of our church is? It's, we've given you almost the whole mission below in the notes. Can any of you craft it? Okay, here's our mission. It explains where we want to go by God's grace. Crossway exists to... Come on, intuit it. What do you got? Crossway exists to make faithful followers of Christ by spreading the, I thought I heard gospel, spreading the gospel of God's grace for the sake of his name. So... <laughs> Yeah, Lori was giving the alternative mission with synonyms. She was getting right through this. So I think that really helps us. If we're asking what we're doing in our church, we should be able to say that this in some way helps us to make faithful followers of Christ by spreading the gospel of God's grace for the sake of his name. So the ultimate goal is the name, the reputation, the glory of our God. We do that by spreading the gospel, by talking about the gospel, and that would be both evangelism as well as sanctifying conversations, right? So I see someone that's struggling with forgiveness. That's a gospel issue. I see someone struggling with loving someone who's unlovely. That's a gospel issue. 
Right? This, is, this is the essence of the gospel, John 3.16. God loved the world. So when you meet a Christian who can't love people who aren't pleasant, that's very ungodly. Right? Godliness is to love the unpleasant world and send his son to die for it. So, so here you have someone who's struggling with the very thing that makes God glorious, his love. And, and so there's a gospel denial in the Christian who has a hard time loving the unlovely. Uh, so there's gospel issues at stake that, that the Christian needs to be thinking about within conversation. So you're speaking outside to someone who's just griping. And you're thinking, okay, the God who secures you in his everlasting love and shelters you in his wings is good. How have you forgotten that? Let me call you to pay attention to the goodness of God and stop complaining, uh, right? Like, or go to ancient Israel. What happens when Israel complains? How does that go for them? Because ultimately, the complaints against Israel and events and circumstances or for better food is a complaint against whom? God. And it is an accusation either of his care or of his providence and care. So again, we go back to gospel issues. Are you saying God doesn't care for you? The God who loves you enough to send his son to die for you doesn't care for you? Or have you just forgotten that? Now again, I would be way more gentle and way less like gospel denial right here because you complained about your neighbor. But I think those are ways in which we recognize that God's glory is actually revealed in gospel communication. And that's how we help make faithful followers, not just bring them into followership, but help them to be faithful in it. So this is where the concise mission statement really helps. When we evaluate missions and when we evaluate ministries, we evaluate whether or not to do something, we should be asking questions like, does this cultivate, help, support, or actually produce opportunities for us to make faithful followers by speaking of the gospel of God's grace so that God is glorified in this. That's, that's to me, so helpful. On that question, ministry should live and die. So we look at something like a family picnic coming up in like two weeks, and our thought is that our church family needs to have fellowship with one another so that those conversations can happen. If we preach on a Sunday morning and the service happens, you give, we sing, and you immediately turn and walk out. You know, kind of like you have the same, um, well, the same method I go to Walmart with. I don't go to Walmart to fellowship. You know why I go to Walmart? To get out. Having successfully gotten what I've come there to get. And so sometimes we look at church like that. I'm going to church in order to get what I want to get, and then I'm going to get out. And, and we forget that the very, the very reason God brings us together isn't only to give worship to God, it's also to build cohesion in the body so that one another ministry happens as we serve each other, as we get to know each other, as we pray for one another. All right, so we've, we've thought through in different ways what we want to be. Not the mission, which is what we want to do, but what does this look like? How, how should we as a people be? What are the types of things that define what we do in ministry? So gospel-centered was all of last week. So I'm not going to belabor the point by going through it again, but, but asking ourselves, how can the gospel um, be communicated? How can it have prominence in the ministry of 
um, individual spokes of what we do here at Crossway or um, you know, fellowships, events, ministries, those types of things. We also want to be mission-driven. I've already kind of tagged the we don't exist for the sake of existing. We don't want to be a church that just goes through the motions. Uh, you know, this is one of those days, hopefully, where you kind of do family a little more purposefully because you, you deliberately honor moms, right? I think sometimes churches get in that cycle of living and they forget to live on mission. So we want to be mission-driven. We want to be moving towards doing the mission. We also want to have genuine worship. What would genuine worship entail? What are some ingredients of genuine worship? Okay, that is a question for you all. Jim? Okay, thankfulness. I think a heart of, of gratitude or cheer, right? God loves a cheerful giver, those types of things. Like That's part of it, sure. Anyone else? Okay, it's God-centered. Okay. You can't worship what you don't know. And I would add to that maybe faith-centered. You can't worship God if you don't trust him. Anything else? A repentant heart, is that what you said? Okay, so if I'm, if I'm going to kind of take that and, and lump it in, kind of have a, a general category here, we have to have believers that are walking with God, generally speaking, in order to have worship. Right? An unbeliever, someone who doesn't trust God, or a rebellious believer who's not living in, in fellowship with God cannot actually be worshiping God until they deal with those huge problems, right? You have to trust God and, and love him and walk with him, or you're not worshiping him. Is there anything else? Oh, and, and Mark said um, kind of that intellectual capacity, which I put in both those things. Like, like if, you don't, if you don't know who this God is, you're not worshiping him. Anything else? Okay, sincerity, like, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's kind of assumed, but it's, it's worth saying. Anything else in worship? <laughs> okay, there is a sense in which you, you can't have a corporate gathering for worship without the gathering. Right? And that is actually essential church worship. If anything, the last couple of years have taught us that, right? That, that while we as individuals do worship, God is really clear, especially like in something like 1 Corinthians 3, that we are a gathered group. We are the temple. There's a togetherness that actually happens in worship. All right. I, I think you guys nailed it, but I would say if, if, we're, if we're clearly thinking, that would eliminate um, including unbelievers in our ideas of worship. You know, so, so an unbeliever might be able to be present but they're actually not part of the ingredients of worship, right? So, so they might see in us genuine worshipers, and we might be pointing to our great and glorious Savior who has loved us and died for us, to whom we are reconciled and in whom we hope for eternal life. And they might see that and join with us and hope in him at some point. But until they do, they can't worship. They can merely observe the worship. And so worship services that are designed for the unbeliever are intrinsically flawed, right? They're, they just, they don't work because they're, they're, they're opposed to themselves by definition. So we talk about genuine worship. Those are the elements. And I would add to this, we must worship 
couple, a couple thoughts just on who God is. And, and I go back to Mark's point. There's an intellectual c- component to this. We must worship God with theological truth. I've given the example before, and I, again, sometimes, you know, older people start repeating themselves. It's already starting. Um, if I write a, let's just say for Mother's Day, I write a wonderful poem to the mother of my children. And I describe her in such a way that everyone, including my wife, knows I'm not describing her. Right? Like I, I talk about how I love her, her short stature, her five foot two, she's five foot seven, and I describe her as five foot two. And I describe her blonde hair and her bright green eyes. She has brown eyes. At some point, not only is my wife not honored, she's angry. She's wondering who this, who this other lady is that I'm praising and exactly why I'm calling her the mother of my children, right? Like, this is not honoring to, to my wife. Can you imagine how dishonored our Lord is by some of the worship happening in our country that is describing how delightful and um, loving and enraptured and gloriously filled with joy our hearts are in contemplating someone, not him? Does that make sense? Like, we are worshiping a God who's glorious because of acts, and God's like, that's not like me at all. That's not, that is not the definition of good. You love something different than me. You're describing something not me as glorious. In fact, that's a way to defame our God, to dishonor him. So when we talk about genuine worship, we must worship God as he truly is, and I would say that means as he's revealed in Scripture and as he reveals us or reveals to us how we worship him. You know, if I'm going back to the Mother's Day idea, if my wife's favorite candy is Skittles, which it has been in years past, but, you know, things move. I'm not sure what it is right now, but she still gets Skittles, and she's not telling us it's not her favorite. But, but if I'm like, you know what, I don't think you should like Skittles, we're getting your broccoli this year. I don't know that my wife would be delighted that I'm correcting her joys. And so, like, when God says, worship me by singing together in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, when God says, worship me by gathering together, worship me by preaching, and we're like, you know what, preaching is so authoritarian, and our culture just doesn't land well, so we're going to have community conversations. It's like me saying, hey, you know what, Skittles are not good for you, Charity, I'm going to get you broccoli. It's insulting. If we trust God and his word, he's told us exactly how to delight him, how to please him, and how to pursue those things that that give him joy as we do them. And so I I think part of just genuine worship is saying, God, what do you tell us to do to please you and come to you in a way that delights you? Let me do that. I don't need to be creative with worship. I just need to be obedient because this is how I please my Lord. Because we talk about genuine worship, it's kind of like that whole complex of discussions and theological commitments that would lead us to genuine worship. Relevant preaching. I always find this one a funny one that we have in our, our, our notes. I, I find a good preaching is always relevant, but not all preaching that desires to be relevant is actually relevant. Okay, so let me, sit, let me just defend good preaching here. Good preaching is Christ-centered, word-saturated, spirit-empowered preaching. This is the living word of God. This is able to make one wise to salvation, Scripture says. Right? It pierces Hebrews 4 
to the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is alive. So good preaching in its, in its essence must be scriptural. And because ultimately scripture is to lead us to Christ, right? He says you, you search the scriptures to the Pharisees because in them you think you have life. It is these, the scriptures, that teach you about me. That, that ultimately good preaching is Christ-centered focusing on the work of the Son of God and his person as the, as the way in which we have our relationship with the Father mediated, our salvation is offered, and through whom we work and live and move and have our being. Okay, so it's Christ-centered and spirit-empowered. That is good preaching is not merely a function of the Bible. It is the function of the Bible being energized by the living spirit who convicts and convinces you it is true, who cultivates in your heart a living faith, right? Regeneration does not happen without the Spirit of God. The natural man cannot discern these things. He must have the Holy Spirit. So without God's Spirit giving you light to see the glory of Christ, you will be blind to him and his glory. So to me then, when I look at the Scriptures as living, as timeless, any good biblical sermon ultimately will be relevant. Relevance is not a matter of good illustrations or anecdotes. It's a matter of faithfulness to the text. So, servant leadership. I don't know that I should have to say much on this, but Jesus Christ examples for us servant leadership, right? He came not to be served, but to do what? And to give his life as a ransom for many. I would think that statements like when, the, when Scripture says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, that we would recognize that leaders are the, um, they lead by serving. They lead not by demanding service, but by making themselves um, work at the disposal of God's people for the glory of God and in obedience to him. Dynamic discipleship, point number six. Discipleship that actually changes lives is the goal here. Right? We, do, we don't want intellectually brilliant Christians who are practically heathens. We want to see you follow Christ faithfully. This is really following through on the mission. We, we want the gospel to move you to be like the God of the gospel. And if, it, if we're discipling others, they are becoming more faithful in their followership. So if we ever just mark off discipleship as someone's prayed a prayer, made a decision, done X, and now they can just sit and coast, we've lost sight of our mission. And then finally, fervent prayer. I'm not sure fervent's the right word for prayer here, but just maybe I would say um, just a vibrant prayer life where you commune with your God. Right? Like prayer is the way in which we speak to God. For all the whole blue about God speaking to us in the charismatic movement, there is a vacuum of discussion about how we speak to God through prayer. I mean, think about that for a moment. We are so, as a culture, as a Christian, broadly speaking, Christian culture, we are so thirsty to hear from God and so silent in response. I mean, if, if you're thinking through the emphasis and we're thinking through communication and communion with our God, why would we not be filled with prayer? in our lives, in our, just the discipline of communication. 
so we want to have people who are constantly speaking to God because they love him, because they uh, walk with him in his word, and their response to life is to always go to their heavenly father. So if any of these kind of hit a nerve, I would trust that even going through this, you're thinking, okay, I need to step up my game. I really need to be faithful in being a servant. If I ever want to be a leader, I need to be someone who's committed, who's faithful, who disciplines myself to serve others. But when you see someone who's in ministry leadership and there's a need that they act is below them, they act as though the, the need is below them, doesn't that just kind of rankle? Does that, doesn't it bother you? It's like, hey, you know, so-and-so, the bathroom is messy. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll have someone else do that. And just the way it's said in the tone, it's just kind of like, ew. Like I, do you want to be a leader like that? I mean, would any of you want to be a mom or a dad like that? That, like, you know, housework is below you. You know, attendance at the ministries that are kind of just hard work and not super pleasant is below you and you just don't show. I don't think we want our leadership team to be like that in any of its levels. Okay, so I want to move forward to what it is to be a Baptist church. So we don't make a big deal about it here in terms of name because to me it's not about the name. It's more about the DNA identity. In other words, this is who we want to be theologically. I think these are our biblical commitments. If you look after all of these distinctives, um, they have scripture after them because we believe they're biblical. So we start with the most basic one. Our central authority is the Bible. So if Scripture speaks to an issue, we want it to speak with authority because it's the, it's the word of the king. It's the word of the one who speaks into existence all things. We listen when he speaks. So what would be other authorities you might know of that some churches defer to? Okay. Pastoral authority as though the word of the pastor is law. Oh, yeah, the pastor of pastors, right? The papa, right? He's, he's that's what the pope is, right? Um, I mean, he's, I, mean, I don't know how to say this without being just rude, but he's a false father, right? He's, he's not a true pastor, but I mean, that's where you see that ultimate pastoral authority come is, is the early church that the church of Rome begins to get prominence, and pretty soon he's the pastor of pastors, and then pretty soon he is the papa, the father. And papal authority, speaking ex cathedra, from his chair, he has divine authority according to Catholic dogma. So when the Catholic church speaks ex cathedra with papal authority, they would see that as, as basically parallel with scriptural authority. That's pretty audacious. Okay, what else in terms of the life of, of churches across this world, Christian churches? Okay, uh, maybe we just say secularism, whether it's, it's evolution or psychology, the sciences, soft or hard sciences. Some of these are contrary authorities or, or, or equal, right? Like, we believe this. And God's word says it too. It's like, oof. Just the framing of that's troubling, isn't it? Okay, what would be another authority? Probably the most common other one that in churches across. Okay, multiple churches. And so I'm going to just amplify that and say tradition. So tradition is actually one of the sneaky ones. 
So churches that are like, yes, the Bible's our only authority, will also push back against changes by saying, well, we had never done it that way before. As though citing last year's calendar means that we can't change it this year. But usually you'd see that in long-term stuff. You know, like a, a pastor comes into a dying church and, and is trying to revitalize it. And so he wants to change things up because clearly this is a struggling church that needs some changes. And he'll hear people push back against his changes by saying what? We've never done it that way before. And that poor guy's thinking, and you're dying because of it. And, at, I mean, the dying breath of a lot of the churches in the country that are slowly dwindling is, well, we've never done it that way before. Then they just, they're, they're stuck with tradition, but you're seeing this more in Presbyterian, kind of liturgical churches as well as Catholic churches where tradition is powerful. And it's not all of that's bad. But we need to make sure it doesn't rise to the level of authority. I mean, I, I love some of the articulated statements and confessions of church history, but they do not rise to the level of Scripture itself. Now, I, I think maybe where I would call upon you guys to be more willing and sympathetic to confessions maybe than historically some Baptist churches have been is that these confessions are articulated interpretations of Scripture. That they shouldn't be taken as authority contrary to, but interpretations of revealed Scripture. So I think like, you know, the Second London Baptist Confession is a really good confession. The New Hampshire is a very good confession. I think these are the two that our church would find a lot of... Um, joy in. They're a little bit different than we believe in certain areas, but they're pretty good. But if you want to find a confession that actually says it well, go to one of those two confessions. All right. Um, autonomy of the local church is 1 Timothy 2.5. What do you think autonomy means? Self-governed. That is, our church doesn't have governance by outside churches. We're not an affiliated church, so we're actually not part of the SBC, although the SBC doesn't really govern its churches. So, I mean, it's one of the reasons why the SBC has such a um, diverse number of churches. You know, so you have churches in the SBC that are like, we wouldn't want to touch with the 10-foot pole. And then you'd have churches that are just like our church in most ways, where you'd go to them and you'd find a lot of just doctrinal uh, harmony with what Crossway has. But we're unaffiliated. So if anyone asks, we're not American Baptist, we're not Southern Baptist, we are, we are Baptistic is usually how I say it. That is, we believe these types of statements articulate our commitment to do church this way, but we're actually not part of an organized fellowship of churches. And that's, that's with reason. In fact, let me give you an example of why. This building is ours because of a lack of autonomy of churches. So this church in 2002, I should say not this church, the church that was in this building in 2002, I want to get this right, was Episcopalian. And the Episcopalian church in 2002 decided to ordain gay clergy. Bakersfield, being a very politically conservative community, had an um, ecclesiastical uprising against the Episcopalian church. And this, the group that was meeting here, bailed into the South American Anglican church. Because Latin America is more conservative when it comes to marriage and sexuality and family. And so they decided to protect the institution of marriage and against homosexuality by joining the South American Anglican Diocese. Well, the problem is the owner of the building was the Episcopalian Church. In 2007, they sued for their buildings back. There were 30 buildings 
in the San Joaquin Valley that were part of that lawsuit. And in that lawsuit that lasted nine and a half years and got settled in December of 2016, this building basically had been left decrepit. No one was paying for, no one wanted to pay for maintenance on a building that was like up in the air. So that's one of the reasons why denominations are incredibly powerful. It's a lot of times they own the buildings. I think technically, although the Mennonite brethren probably won't do anything like that because they just don't like fighting, is Laurel Glen owns, doesn't own the building they're in. And they just left the uh, Mennonite brethren over a really good decision about doctrine. But my understanding is the note on that building is carried by the MB organization. And so technically, they could, they could boot out the congregation of Bakersfield. And that building is owned by the national organization. That's incredibly powerful, which means if you have an issue with biblical authority and number one, autonomy of the local church is actually one of the ways you defend that integrity. Because you're saying, we believe the scripture, we don't want an organization to exercise manipulative authority over us. Okay, priesthood of the believers, the next one. Does anyone know what priesthood of the believer means? This is not hard, but it may be something you're unfamiliar with. Believers are Okay, what does a priest normally do? He kind of stands between you and God, deals with your sin before God, and often in, in some ways will uh, kind of appease that, that hostility that God has against sinners, right? Okay, so how do you know you don't need a priest? Okay, the veil is torn in two is a great example. Through the sacrifice of Christ, a once and for all sacrifice, and the priestly ministry of Christ, he has opened for us a new and living way so that we can come boldly where? Yeah, we're coming boldly before his very throne, the throne of grace. You pray directly to God, you enter his presence through the ministry of Christ. You do not need to have a priest ministering for you. That has been answered and has been done. And so, I mean, in a, an incredibly gracious act, God has delimited his worship. So that, like, for instance, in John 4, where the woman at the well is asking, do I need to go to Jerusalem, to the temple in Jerusalem, to worship through the priests in Jerusalem in order to access the one true God? And he says, there is a time coming when people will worship me in what? Spirit and truth. And his point is, is right now you can't worship in truth without going to Jerusalem. But you will be able to worship in a time in the future without going to Jerusalem in spirit and still maintain fidelity to God's way of doing it in truth. So you can have both spirit and truth. But right now, basically, to the woman of the well, you have your spirit in the right place, but you are not doing it as prescribed, so you're not in truth. Okay, that's what's happening in that statement. That's a pretty significant one. So we worship God by spirit anywhere, anytime, because God has granted to us through the work of Christ that unity with God so that we stand boldly in his presence as um, a kingdom of priests, First Peter would say. All right, two offices. I will not spend a lot of time on this. I think this is pretty, uh, for you guys, I, I would think, uh, pretty well understood. Pastors and deacons are the only two officers in a church. Okay, we don't have, um, what would be, what'd be other offices that sometimes have occurred? Apostles? Uh, well, bishops, so that's a good question. Bishop means overseer. And what would be the other word for a pastor? An elder. 
So overseers, elders, and pastors. You go to Ephesians, excuse me, Ephesians. You go to Acts 20, and he's talking to the Ephesian elders. And he says something like this to the elders in Ephesus. I charge you to shepherd the flock and oversee. You know, he calls upon them, to, and, and he does so by using all three. First uh, Peter 5, I think, similarly um, talks to overseers. He says, shepherd the flock, pastor the flock. You know, so you see those terms used somewhat interchangeably. For instance, there are no qualifications for pastors given anywhere in the New Testament. What are the qualifications given for? No. Overseers or bishops. So, I mean, if you want to and you want to be biblical and you want to be a little bit old in your English, you can call me a bishop. This feels really like high church, doesn't it? No, bishop. Bishop Mark. Yeah, or, you know, you could say doctor, elder, pastor, bishop. You know, like, it's, it's uh, to me, six and one half dozen the other. I tend to call all of our pastors pastor, but I could also call them elder, and sometimes I'll do that. So to me, like, if you're thinking about it, I think our work is pastoring. I think dignity is overseer. Maybe I could say it's better. We pastor people, we oversee the work, and we do so with the dignity of elders. Um. So, as sheep, we need shepherds. The work needs oversight, and it needs to be done with dignity. I think that's a helpful way for, for me to think through it. And um, So, if I think about it that way, probably the people should be called elders, because that speaks more to the person, not their work. Um, but I generally call pastor, that's probably more my heritage than biblical, um, although they're all biblically uh, suitable. Okay, individual liberty. What does this mean to you all? Because we all care what it means to you. Okay. Say that again, Liz. I didn't get the first. Okay, set free from the law. Um, ish. We're heading the right direction. Can anyone add to it? Okay, it would have to do with, um, so I think that's where I go with what Liz was saying, I think, was more like the idea of legalism and set free from like bondage to some type of regulated obedience or, like you said, standards. If I were to say something along the lines of faith can't be coerced or granted to another, would that make sense? I would really like to coerce all my children to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved, wouldn't you? <laughs> like, just like, if you could twist their arm and like, they're all in heaven. They're all secured eternally. They will persevere. That would be just so peace-giving to all of us parents. But that's not how this works. Is, is that faith needs to be personally expressed. An individual has to express it. This also means then in matters of obedience and righteousness and behavior, for it to be truly God-pleasing, it has to come from the person. It has to be expressions of sincerity of the heart. Maybe you could give a, a, a goofy example that probably most parents have done. Have you ever given your children money and said, you must put it in the offering plate, parents? Is that an act of obedience to parents or worship and devotion to God? Now, it might be a good thing to do as a parent because you're teaching them that this is an appropriate demonstration of our love for God. But, like, let's just use my two youngest. Zion and Solomon have unregenerate hearts. They're little rebels. And so when they put that money in the offering plate, I have no idea what's going through their heart, but it is not faith that generates that gift of worship. 
it might be like, ooh, this is cool. I mean, Zion, half the time I'm worried he's going to pull the coins out of the offering plate. So usually it's really good that it's empty when it goes by. I mean, he wouldn't do it because he's trying to steal. He just likes shiny things. Uh, it's like it would, it would interest him for two minutes, and then it would be on the ground. It's not really about the value of the thing. For him, putting money in the offering plate is, again, not about the value he's giving. So, so it's just more like, oh, this is cool. Plink. That is not him worshiping God. So when we talk about individual liberty, you need to be convinced. You need to express your behavior and your worship as a personal act of devotion. So this would have um, like Christian liberty influences in it. Listen, if you want to get a tattoo, be fully convinced in your heart that this pleases the Lord. Be, be understanding your culture well and live in a way that's holy to God. And know that and be convinced of that. Right? Like, like, we can't just tell you what pleases God, and you do it because Mark said so, and you live well. You must be fully convinced in your own mind. So go to, like, Romans 14, 21, I think would be a good passage there. All right. Um, church membership. Must be regenerate or saved, is the word I have in the blank there. Uh, so at the end of the day, maybe I could just say this. Any biblical church is a gospel community which means you must be in the gospel to be legitimately part of the community. There are two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. No snake handling or foot washing allowed here. Um, <laughs> there are southern churches historically that have had those things. But what, what, uh, an ordinance is something that <clears throat> I think represents the gospel. It's instituted by the Lord and the New Testament church patterns it. It's got to have all of those ingredients. So like Lord's Supper you see reflections of the Lord's death, right? Like his body, his, his blood. It's instituted by the Lord during his life. And then you see the New Testament church do it in a symbol of that, that saving work of Christ. Baptism, baptism has the same thing. It's instituted during the life of the Lord. He, he has his disciples baptized, right? He himself is baptized. Then you see the New Testament church commanding it and doing it. And it symbolizes the Lord's death and his resurrection. So you, you, that, that's what an ordinance is. So that's where, like, foot washing's out. You don't see the New Testament church doing it. Uh, you don't see it clearly symbolizing saving faith. There might be some debate about that, about what Jesus means by washing his disciples. But um, at least you don't see the New Testament church commanded to do it, nor do you see them doing it. And, and same thing, like, with snake handling, which is kind of a goofy one. But, like, end of Mark, which is probably a textual issue, shouldn't be there, but... Um, then you also see, like, the New Testament church not doing it, unless you want to take Paul on the island. You know, when he reaches in, there's a fire, and there's, a, there's an adder comes out and bites him. <laughs> like, so that's not really good um, precedent for snake handling, but that's where it would come from. So it doesn't, it doesn't example for us any of the saving work of Christ, nor is it commanded, nor is it actually done by the New Testament church. So those are, those are kind of what defines Baptist um, um, beliefs. The last one is separation. I would put kind of two categories of separation here, that you need to be personally separate from the world. That is, you should not embrace worldliness. I think Philippians would say something like this, live as a citizen of heaven. And so both behavior, beliefs, interaction and engagement with worldly things, whether they're sinful isn't always the point. Sometimes they communicate uh, just an appreciation of the values of the world or, or an appreciation of those things that drive the world system. We need to be cautious of these things. 
Um, but also then we separate from sin within Christians. So um, we want sin out from the body. So if we have a believer that's holding on to sin, we ultimately have to get rid of that believer because they're denying the gospel in that, that retention of sin. Um, so separation that way. We also have a separation of church and state. This probably makes Baptists a little bit unique. You know, so Presbyterians generally don't have a church and state, uh, a pr- uh, separation of church and state in their dogma. Baptist churches do. Um, I, I think, like, you go back and you see a magisterial element to the, the Presbyterian churches where, uh, for instance, Geneva with Calvin. You know, the Geneva City Council is the one that hired John Calvin. Right, so the separation of church and state was not something he was fighting for. And it really isn't until you get the Baptist in England and some of those churches that are like, wait, hold on a second here. Kind of the incorporation of church within the um, governance or the governance of civil authorities within the church is something the New Testament clearly, I think, teaches us not to do. It's actually helpful during COVID for me. Because where Governor Newsom wanted to get his hands into the worship of the church, I think we had a biblical precedent for saying, no, 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 no. This worship is not your domain, Gavin. Back off. You can do that respectfully and kindly, right? But, but he's, he, he doesn't have the right as a governor. Now, if he was a pastor at our church and governor, then as a pastor, you know, he would have play or as a member in our church. But as a governor, civil authorities should have no authority within the church. And, and I think this is where we can kind of be a little bit upside down. The church should be careful not to try to govern the civil lives of its people through its church ministry. That's not our job. So probably just the simplest way I see Jesus express this, I think there's some New Testament passages beyond this, but where where he talks about um, the coin, he says, whose image is on this coin? And the answer is, he's like, okay, give it to Caesar. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and there's other things. They're whose things? God's things. Give God's things to God. So what are God's things? What? Okay, whose image is on the coin? Well, that identifies it as Caesar's domain. Give it to Caesar. Where's God's image? You're made in God's image. Give to God the things that are God is a, is a declaration that he owns you. So that's, I mean, it's a pretty audacious claim Jesus makes, but he clearly establishes a civil authority as distinct from a sacred authority over our lives. So I would just suggest to you that it's one of the ways our, our church was helped during COVID, but I think going forward, we're going to have probably more and more battles. I don't think our government cares to stay distinct from the church much longer. I think it's going to try to get its greasy fingers into our churches. And we need to, with grace and conviction, do well at keeping those entanglements distinct. All right. Let me end there. I know we didn't finish that, and that's what I said last week. I think especially this section is more challenging, but also more philosophically important. So next week, come uh, prime for questions. I didn't get much time for questions this morning, so we need to close. Let me pray, and then you guys can go grab coffee and donuts to get ready for the next service. Father in heaven, we want to please you, and we realize that a lot of what we went through this morning in our notes are ways in which we think as a church we can please you. We also recognize that these are constructs that um, are based on our understanding of your scripture, so I I pray that we would start with 
just a humble desire to know your word and to live under its authority, and that these structures would help us to honor your word, that they would not hinder it, nor would they rise above it. Uh, Lord, help us to always believe and follow after your word, to love you above all things. Lord, I pray that our homes would be filled with the sound of your gospel, that it would shape our uh, leadership in the homes, that our moms would have the uh, sweet character of the grace of Christ as they uh, minister to their children, as they help their husbands. Lord, even on a day like this where our culture calls it Mother's Day, there can be such a twisting of the concept of motherhood and of womanhood. I ask that you would <clears throat> strengthen our church to understand well the dignity and the beauty of being a mom, what an honorable position it is, and um, how good it is to leverage that role for eternity within the home. Lord, I pray that you would give our women delight in being moms. And even this week, we celebrate the joy of the announcement of a new mother expecting a baby. We thank you so much for the wonderful gift of life and of motherhood. And we thank you for the opportunity as a church to lift up the home and reflect the way your word honors it. So Lord, I pray that you would help um, our, our homes to be ones where marriages are secure, husbands are faithful to their wives, and honor them as the mother of their children. Lord, help our children, whether they're adult or newly uh, brought into this world, to be faithful to their moms and honor them and to lift up the role of being a mother. Lord, we ask these things because we want to reflect your word and the way your word reflects our understanding of reality. So help us to be good and faithful to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.